It's great to be known, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever been in a situation, I haven't got my name tag on today, but my name's Steve, and uh, my wife's telling me to pull my jumper down. It's good. <laughs> because I'm known. Uh, <laughs> but of all the days that I was going to talk about being known, I haven't got a name tag on, so I'm Steve. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone away from New Community on a Sunday morning, and uh, you've had your name tag on, you head down to Eastland, and uh, somebody says to you, hi, Steve, and you think to yourself, how do they know me? Um, well, actually, they don't. But it is a great thing to be really known. And uh, we're going to be talking about a woman who was uh, known, really well known uh, by Jesus, even though she'd never met him before. But just uh, by way of introduction, on the screen, we have a number of uh, little things for you to work on. And the first one is that... Um, these, the, see, these people who use SMS all the time, and Troy's got the OMG uh, title for this series from these SMS shortcuts, I guess. But um, I, I thought got you some others so that you can see if you work what they are. Anybody use that one? Anybody? Shout it out if you know what it means. For what it's worth. For what it's worth. Very good, very good. Next one. HTH. What was it? Hope this helps. Very good. You could use these. I've never used them. Next one. IDK. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's right. Next one. IIRC. If I recall correctly. <laughs> James Telfer, go to the top of the class. Next one. LOL. <laughs> laughing out, laugh out loud. And I thought for years that it was lots of love. Anyway, IMO. In my opinion. IMHO. In my honest or humble opinion. I am NSHO, <laughs> in my not-so-humble opinion. <laughs> and then finally, OMG. And, you know, sadly, people today use OMG so tritely, so flippantly, don't they? We invoke the name of God uh, over some little thing that might amaze us. Uh, whereas, really, in these stories we're looking at in John, we, we come across some people who come to see Jesus for who he really is they actually come to understand that he's God uh, in the flesh. This woman that we're going to talk about today, you could really describe her, I reckon, as the woman who was running on empty. I don't know about you, but I hate when my fuel gauge in the car gets really low. I have this fear. I think it's because when I was, was young, I had this Morris 1100. And uh, when I'd come on a long trip and I'd stop, I remember at Kew Junction, and the lights wouldn't change for a long time, all the fuel in the, in the little fill-up tank in the carburetor would drain out because it wasn't going fast enough, and it would stall, and I couldn't get it started again. I have this fear of running out of petrol. And uh, when my gauge is low, especially, especially in the East Link Tunnel, I think this could be embarrassing. It's never happened to me, but running on empty is not a good feeling. And I, I think it's possible in, for us in our lives to feel sometimes like we're running on empty, that the gauge is really down, down low. Uh, and I don't know about you sitting here this morning, but maybe you're sitting here in your heart, deep down, you're feeling really quite miserable. Um, for some of us, life is like just survival. We're barely surviving from day to day. And like, like Mike's mother in that uh, movie, The Blind Side, she certainly would have been able to identify with the woman we're going to talk about this morning in this story from John chapter 4. I'd encourage you, if you get home, to read the chapter. It's a really great story. But this woman was well known. Just before we start, I want to just show you some, uh, some of the couple of things in the story. One of the things that comes up in the story clearly is this, this woman goes to draw water. And so there's some imagery in this story which I think is, is probably quite profound in that she has this, these water jars 
and she goes to draw water in the heat of the day, which wouldn't have been the normal time to draw water, uh, and she carries this water jar, and she has to obviously do it day after day after day. And so this, this imagery of the empty life full of drudgery, every day, water pot, heat of the day, fill it up, go back, do it again the next day, and that sense of, when's this ever going to end? When's my life going to get any better? And so we can imagine what she was like. She was probably not unlike most of us. She was looking for happiness and she was looking for satisfaction. But as we get through the story, you'll realise that she looked for it in a whole lot of different ways and uh, happiness for her and satisfaction deep down seemed to be quite elusive. We're told later on that the current man in her life was man number six and uh, it would seem that all of her relationships had turned sour. And so you can imagine that sort of life, looking back on a mountain of emotional turmoil and uh, little to look forward to, getting older, probably not as attractive as she once was, all of those sort of things. And so I guess the question as we think about this this morning, how is it for you, how is it for me, uh, as we just think about our lives, have we been trying to fill our lives with all sorts of things that actually don't ultimately satisfy us, uh, and yet missing out on the one who really has the answer? It'd be terrible if we get to the end of our lives and, and... All we can say is a whole lot of if-onlys, a whole lot of regrets that we hadn't uh, lived in a way that was, uh, was different. Now, there's another bit of background I think is important on that next little map. Sorry, go back one. Um, that's a map of um, Israel. And down the bottom, well, historically, for example, up the top was um, the northern kingdom of Israel and down the bottom, so Galilee up that area, northern kingdom, and down the bottom the southern kingdom. And historically, the northern kingdom went into... They were actually overrun by the Assyrians in uh, about 722 BC. So the, the Jews in the northern kingdom were, were shipped out and really scattered all over the place, but some of them came back and were all mingled in with, the other, with, with other heathen nations around them. So their, their Jewishness got fairly uh, corrupted by the fact that they intermarried and, and all sorts of things with other people. Now, the southern kingdom, a similar thing happened to them. They were taken off by the Babylonians about 100 and something years later, in about 586 BC, and they ended up in Babylon, but they were in captivity and they kept their Jewishness. And then when they returned, they're uh, down there and they, they see themselves as so different to these people who are almost like you know, half-breeds in their, in their thinking in terms of their Jewishness. And so you have this, this history of Jews having no dealings with Samaritans because the Jews, I guess, thought they, their religion was so much more pure. And uh, there were some terrible things happened historically between the two of them, uh, which we haven't got time to go into, but that's really the history. And so when we read this story, we read in it that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, that's a bit of the background. They didn't because they didn't trust each other. Um, and so by the time of Jesus, with that history in the background, there's this settled hostility between Jew and Samaritan. And when we get to this story, let's look at the first little bit here. It says, Jesus left Judea and he returned to Galilee. So you can imagine he's wanting to go from the bottom of that map up to the top. And he had to go through Samaria. Now, you might have noticed on that map when it was up there that there was a little path that went by and it's on the other side of the Jordan River. So the Jordan River is the river that joins up the Sea of Galilee up the top with the Dead Sea. And the typical path for a Jewish person to go to Galilee was to go across the Jordan up there and bypass Samaria because they didn't want to go through that territory. And yet in this passage, when we read about Jesus and this woman, it says, thanks, uh, Tim, it says he had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So there's a lot of history in this place. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, 
sat wearily beside the well about noontime and soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. I love the way John records the humanity of Jesus. He's tired. He's sitting wearily on this well. He's thirsty. And uh, it, says, it says back there, sorry, Tim, <laughs> um, that he had to go through Samaria. And we would suggest that he had to go because God is actually prompting him. It's a divine appointment. Jesus as God's son, who we come to know him, as he has to go through Samaria because God's got business for him to do there. Well, that's by way of introduction. First of all, I want to show you how the, the curiosity of this woman was aroused. You see, Jesus says to her, please give me a drink. He's there and he's uh, asking her. And he's alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy food. So he's just Jesus and this woman in the heat of the day. And the woman was surprised, it says in, in John, because Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? good question that history in mind a good question it's a jew asking a samaritan just didn't happen it's a man in this culture speaking to a woman in public just didn't happen it's a jew in in the person of jesus potentially defiling himself by accepting water drawn by the utensils of a of a a woman who wasn't a jew somebody who wasn't a jew so using their stuff because jews were very special about their their cleanliness laws and I guess even, even more than this, this woman, as we learn, seems to be a woman of ill repute. They reckon she comes to the well at the middle of the day, not the normal time of day, because uh, she didn't want to be shamed when she did it with other people who would have come in the cool of the day, morning or evening. And so here is Jesus speaking to this woman of ill repute. And I think we learn something about Jesus, don't we, in, in a story like this. Jesus isn't in any way hampered in his dealings with people by the kind of discriminations that affect you and affect me uh, so easily. We subtly can discriminate on on the basis of race or sex or status or uh, income or education or whatever. We can be pretty selective, uh, you and me, about who we choose to mix with, can't we? And yet in, in this book of John, in the previous chapter, we've seen Jesus with this ruler of the Jews called Nicodemus, who was a, really a, an aristocrat and a male... And here in John 4, he's speaking to this uh, outcast uh, peasant Samaritan woman. You couldn't get a greater contrast. And so Jesus has this, this way of uh, just being who he is with whoever he meets. And, you know, what do we, what do we take from that ourselves? I want to I suggest to you this morning that Jesus is interested in you. You might, think, you might be here this morning and you think, hey, he doesn't, you don't know what I'm like. You don't know how unlovable I feel. Uh, the, the truth of, the, of, of this story and the truth of the Bible is that Jesus is interested in you. You and me are of great worth in his eyes. And like this woman, he wants to engage you in conversation and he wants to change your life. So this woman's curiosity has been aroused and I wonder as you think about this and as you think about Jesus, you might be at that place where your curiosity is just beginning to be aroused as you think about him. Well, the next little slide talks about how his need is acknowledged. Jesus says, uh, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. So here is Jesus asking this woman for water. And then he comes back to her and says, uh, after she said, why do you ask me? He says, if you knew who you were speaking to, you'd actually ask me for living water or running water, effectively. And um, it's quite a contrast. And she, she, I've got a lot of questions there because I couldn't fit on the slide. <clears throat> but uh, 
he says things like this, Sir, you don't have a, a rope or a bucket, and this well's very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So even this is stagnant water in a well, but obviously fresh water, uh, she, she's suggesting that you, you know, you're saying me give, you can give me living water, running water, fresh water, better water than this water in this well, Jacob's well. Wow, you, you must be special. And uh, you haven't even got stuff to pull it up out of a well anyway. So how can you offer me living water? And Jesus comes back and says, anyone who drinks this water, the water in the well, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And the woman says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Interesting, it's hard to know what's going on in her mind, isn't it? And how much she's starting to understand that this water is a bit different to water. Um, All sorts of emotion and confusion, I guess, in her mind. I reckon at one level she could be saying, you've got to be joking. Who are you to offer running water to a girl like me when you haven't even got a bucket to draw? And this water in this well from Jacob, not good enough for types like you, eh? You've got to offer something better. But maybe she's thinking, maybe this is all just too good to be true. But how good it would be if it was true. Almost, please, sir, give me some of this wonderful water. If you can do that, I won't have to keep coming back and forth day after day, the drudgery of my empty life. If you could just come good with this. Wow. Wow. Maybe she thinks, maybe it's actually true. He has something to offer that I really need. And he's a stranger to her, but she's probably thinking it would be a really, really nice trick if you could do it, stranger. If you could do your thing with this living water stuff, it would certainly get me off this treadmill that I'm on. And so she acknowledges her need in a sort of a way, and she says, please, sir, give me this water. Back one slide. And you know... When you think about each one of us as we come and are confronted with Jesus, Jesus who we come to see as God's son, God in the flesh. The first step in coming to him is acknowledging that we actually need him. Sir, please give me this water. I wonder where you're at with that today. When you are confronted with Jesus as we read of him in the Bible, Do you realise that you've got a need? You actually need him. You need what he has to offer. You need the living water that he has to provide. Jesus said in another place, people who are healthy uh, don't need a doctor, only those who are sick. You see, what can a, a doctor do for a patient who refuses to admit he has a problem? Not much. You see, we can only receive from Jesus when we're prepared to admit that we've got an emptiness inside uh, and we have a longing for something to satisfy that emptiness and we see in him the source of that living water. And so the story goes on and this, it, it would seem that it almost changes, thanks to him, changes tack altogether because Jesus has been polite and discreet up until this point and then he says to her this question that reveals that he knows a whole lot about her. Uh, he says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't have a husband. If you had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now, you certainly spoke the truth. Now imagine you in that woman's position. You would feel amazed and confronted and uh, probably embarrassed and shamed and all sorts of things. So this Jesus who's been gentle and, and sort of 
mysterious up to this point, now comes in really strong and says, hey, something not right with you. And she's probably thinking, I've never met this man before and he knows all about me and yet he still wants to talk with me. And so Jesus' diplomacy comes to a little bit of a, a confrontation, a, a, a say, hey, where's, where are you with your conscience? And she could reflect on her whole life with a whole lot of if-onlys and she could blame her circumstances and all sorts of things. But Jesus is seeking to awaken her conscience to show her that her real problem is actually with herself. You see, God made us for a relationship with him. And if we choose to ignore him, there are consequences. And God gave us standards for, of behaviour. And uh, most of us have rebelled against them in, in all sorts of ways. And Jesus sees through your life, he sees through my life, and we're well known to him. And uh, that can be a, uh, an unsettling thought for many of us. But Jesus sees all of our cover-up. Most of us have got things in our lives that we just, we'd like no one else to know about. But Jesus sees through all that. And he sees this woman's six love affairs. And he, he wants us too to see our failure and our brokenness for what it is. We need to own up to our own stuff, don't we? The water of life that we need and uh, that Jesus offers us is a gift from God. And God gives that gift strictly to people who, who come to him humbly, who come to him aware of the fact that they don't measure up when it comes to pleasing God. And so this woman's conscience is awakened. And it seems like in the next slide, thanks, Tim, that um, she, she sends it off on a tangent. And that's a, a thing we do pretty well, don't we, when, uh, when we're a bit confronted. And maybe this is a smokescreen, but she says, Sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? Well, we Samaritans claim here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. So first of all, she perceives that he's a prophet. Pretty... Uh, pretty perceptive isn't she this man who's told her all about her history without knowing her he's a prophet so i wonder if this is a smoke screen to change the subject away from the embarrassment of her past she suddenly realized that this man who she'd taken for a, a rather liberal free-thinking jew is actually a, a prophet with supernatural knowledge of all of her affairs of how much she'd sinned and how much she'd been sinned against and, you know, for a lot of us, when a, 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 a finger's put on our, a sore spot in our lives, we're pretty quick to um, change the subject. And often, often talking about religion in a general sense is a good way of getting, getting away from talking about uh, morality and the things that affect us. So we talk about, you know, why? what about all those other religions and what about all those, all those denominations? I can't work all that out. And, um, you yeah, my father was Catholic and my mother was Protestant. Man, I don't know where that leaves me. It all, all gets too, too complicated, doesn't it? So many questions. And this woman's question is, I thought when I was brought up, I was that this mountain up here in Samaria, this Mount Gerizim, that's the place where to worship. But now, you Jews, you think Mount Zion down there near Jerusalem, that's the place where you should worship. I'm confused. Which one should I worship at? And so, her implication seems to be, it's all a bit uncertain, really. We can't both be right. Maybe nothing can be certain. Maybe even the morality that we were taught is a bit uncertain. It's all a bit up for grabs, isn't it? There are probably excuses that totally miss the point that God is God and God has a claim on each of our lives and God is, is uncontainable. He can't be contained within uh, mountains or buildings like this woman was uh, pointing at. And Jesus later points out that true worship will have nothing to do with uh, actually the location. Um, 
But maybe this woman's thinking, you've come to me and you've awakened my conscience. You've revealed that actually I'm not, it's not all right with me. There's some things in my life that aren't right. And in their culture, it would have been clear that to, to get things right, I have to do something. I have to worship. I have to offer a sacrifice. And I don't know where to do it. Is my mountain the right one or yours? So maybe there's an element of, I need to do something, but I don't quite know how. So that's the first little smokescreen. And then the second one is, well, let's wait until Messiah comes. He'll explain everything. You know, we can wait. And Jesus comes back to her and says, I am he. I am the Messiah. Wow. Wow. It's almost like she's just kicked an own goal, isn't it? He's told her that salvation is from the Jews in this passage. And uh, he's told her that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. And now he points her to the one who's worthy of her worship. And it's not about the mountain. It's not about the temple. It's about me. Jesus says... I who speak to you, I'm he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one. I am the one who should be the very heart of your worship. We often, uh, as followers of Jesus, used to sing a song uh, that went something like this, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things that I've made it because it's all about you. In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Hey, you might be all confused about where and how and whatever, but actually the heart of worship is me and you need to come back to me because I'm the Messiah, I'm God's son in the flesh. And so we come to the final little bit, responding to Jesus. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman but they didn't have the nerve to ask what he wanted with her or why you're talking with her. And it says, The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And you can see this growing understanding in her that this Jesus who's sat with her, who's offered her living water, who's awakened her conscience, is now beginning to be recognised as the Messiah. And this living water that Jesus spoke of, the living water that goes on satisfying that spiritual thirst, it's not a physical commodity to be had. Uh, No, Jesus is God. And he is the life of God in person. And he gives us life, life in all its fullness, life that goes on forever by giving himself to us. He deals with our moral failures, like this woman's, by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. And the answer to our our deeper spiritual need isn't a new religious experience, but rather it's a relationship with him. Uh, Troy wrote a little booklet, and it's on the tables, and it's called uh, Religion or Relationship. And this is what this woman needed to know, that it's actually not about my observance of all these things, my worshipping at the right place, but it's about a relationship with Jesus himself. It's about drinking of that living water that only he can give. And so he invited this woman and he invites you and he invites me. And then it says, the disciples, sorry, back, disciples came back. And I gave the slide to me, that's okay. It says she left her water jar. And I just think that's really interesting symbolism in the context of this story, that this thing that was a symbol of her, her drudgery, as she goes back into the town to tell people that she's met this man, he could possibly be the Messiah because he told me everything I ever did, um, she left her water jar. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, a profound lesson for us there. If, if you want to be free of the things that burden you down, the things that are, are, are a weight to you, the things that spoil your life, Um, Jesus offers you living water. He offers you spiritual refreshment. He wants to come into your life. He wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to make you whole. (coughs) 
the next slide says, many Samaritans from, from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days. This territory that Jews didn't spend time in, he stays in their village two days. Long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. Jesus had said to her, when she was talking about the mountains, he said, you'll come to realise that salvation is from the Jews. And these Samaritans come to recognise that Jesus is the saviour of the world. A lot to think about in a story like this, isn't there? A woman who's well known by Jesus, even though she thinks he'd never met her before. And you know, he knows you and he knows me. Just final things to think about. Jesus is offering living water. I just want you to think, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty today for what Jesus has to offer? Maybe you haven't come to that point in your life where you say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to accept what he's done for me. Um, maybe you need to be thinking about that, thinking really seriously about it. I'd love to talk to you about that if you wanted to. The other thing that's um, on the bottom of the screen there is that many people in that situation have questions or obstacles like this woman had that sort of seem to be blockers to actually coming to understand who Jesus is and coming to know him. Alpha is a great place for questions and Alpha's starting on the 18th and the 20th of August. So if you want to be involved in Alpha, there's space on your card to just write, I'd like to be involved in Alpha uh, and we'll contact you about that. But the second question is this, Jesus knows all about you. And I wonder for you, is that an unsettling question or a comforting question? And I'd love it if you could leave here today knowing that that question is the most comforting question uh, because the reality of, of Jesus knowing all about you uh, is, is a beautiful thing, to be known fully by the one who is the God of heaven and the saviour of the world. Thank you. Jesus, bright as the morning star, Jesus, how can I tell you how beautiful you are to me? Jesus, song that the angels sing, Jesus, dearer to my heart than anything, sweeter than springtime, purer than sunshine, ever my song will be.